If you're new with us, we're working through the book of Colossians, and uh, took a little detour last week for Easter Sunday, but we're back today in Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to cover verses 9 through 11. There should be an outline in your bulletin, or if you didn't pick one up on the way in, feel free to get up and grab one. And there are printed manuscripts of the um, message uh, that are available at both exits also, and all of those are on the church website, so you can access them there, or they're on sermonaudio.com as well. Um, This morning, I'm going to cover verses 9 through 11, and there's a very profound statement at the end of verse 11 that deserves more than I'm able to do This morning, so next week, I'm just going to cover that phrase at the end of verse 11, that Christ is all and in all. Uh, But this morning, reading at starting at verse 9, Paul says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self, or better, the old man is the literal Greek, and I think that's a better translation, as I'll explain in a few moments. You laid aside the old man with its practices, and you've put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Um, And I believe it should read, in which, that is, in which new man, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. A minister noticed a group of boys standing around a stray dog, and he walked up and said, uh, Hi, boys, what, what are you doing? Uh, one of the boys said, Telling lies. He said, The one who tells the biggest lie gets the dog. Well, the minister was shocked, and he said to them, Why? When I was your age, I never thought of doing such a thing. Well, the boys kind of looked a little crestfallen, and then one of them spoke out and said, Well, guys, I guess he gets the dog. (laughs) You know, we all struggle with telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, don't we? Uh, In our text, Paul explains, though, why we as Christians must be truthful people. He says that we must be truthful because we're new creatures in Christ and we're members of the same body. Our text is parallel to, it's shorter than, but parallel to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 25. And in that text... Paul also uses the same analogy of putting off the old man, putting on the new man. And then he adds in Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That's the same idea as here in our text. The concept of putting off the old man And putting on the new man, though, as I explained briefly when I read the text, it's not an individualistic thing only. It does involve that. Each one must do it. 
but it's a corporate thing, as I'll explain here as we proceed. Um, It's a corporate thing because Christ is now the head of his body, the church. And when we trust in him, we become members of his body, the church. And so we are to speak truth one to another because we're new creatures in Christ. And that makes us members of one another. And as such, uh, we must communicate truly. If your physical body doesn't communicate truth, maybe your hand gets hurt and it doesn't tell your brain, you got problems. The body has to communicate truthfully with its members in order for it to be healthy. The same with the church. And so, first thing we need to focus on is simply that as Christians, we must be truthful in love. Now, I I would guess most of us, if somebody called us a liar, we'd be offended. If they questioned our truthfulness, we we might say, well, you know, I, I admit I've got some problems, but truthfulness, being truthful isn't one of them. I'm a truthful person. But we have to be careful there or we end up being like that minister and lying about our truthfulness. Um, we all struggle with being truthful and it's a constant struggle Even if you've been a Christian a long time, as I have, it is a struggle. And if you're not struggling, then I would say you're not being truthful. Because it is a battle. It's our human default mode to bend the truth to make ourselves look better in any situation. Let me just walk you through a few of the ways that we struggle with truthfulness. One is the half-truth. The half-truth. You tell the truth as far as you go, you just don't tell the whole truth because, you know, it would make you not look so good, maybe. Remember how Abraham did that with Sarah, his wife? He told Pharaoh, well, she's my sister. And he did the same thing later with the uh, Philistine king. She's my sister. That was half true. Because actually, in that day, there was not a prohibition against marrying your half-sister, and she was his half-sister, same father, different mother. But the relevant point was, she is your wife. And he covered that up. Uh, Then there's similar, called the lie of omission. You just leave something out. Uh, This is a temptation at tax time, isn't it? You made a little extra income. And it was cash, and you don't have to report it unless you're honest. And so you just conveniently forget about that on your 1040 form. Or maybe you're at the store and the cashier gives you back more change than you're due. Or perhaps forgets to ring up one of the items in your cart. And you just say, well, praise the Lord, he's providing for me, and walk away. Well, you shouldn't be praising the Lord. You should be honest in that situation. It's a lie of omission. And then there's one we're all prone to, exaggeration. You just stretch the truth a little bit to make yourself either look better or maybe worse than really was the case. I read this funny statement by the former Chicago mayor, Richard Daly. He said, they have vilified me. They have crucified me. Yes, they've even criticized me. (laughs) Well, that's an exaggeration. They weren't vilifying and crucifying him, even if they were criticizing him. 
And then there are so-called white lies. They're supposedly harmless uh, untruths that don't hurt anyone. For example, uh, you could go to work. You got a little headache, but you're not sick enough to stay home. But you got things to do, so you call in sick. Um, Or maybe you go to the doctor and uh, he asks, have you been on the regimen I put you on? Oh, yes. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Uh, Generally, maybe, but not totally. And then there are lies to cover for someone else, you know? And this is hard when you're at work and your boss says, if anybody calls, tell them I'm not in. And you know he's in. Uh... What do you do? Or maybe there's an alcoholic family member and you're trying to cover up for them and make them look okay. A difficult one is when you have to write a letter of recommendation as a supervisor for a former employee who maybe wasn't such a great employee. And you want to tell the truth uh, and you want to make them look as good as they possibly can be. But on the other hand, too, you don't want to get sued. So what do you say? I read about one wise guy. He came up with a lexicon of intentionally ambiguous recommendations. Uh, In case you didn't catch it, that's L-I-A-R, liar. Um, And, uh, for example, to describe somebody who was not a very good employee, uh, you can say, I can assure you that no person would be better for the job. Now, think about that. That's ambiguous. Uh, It might mean you can't find anybody as good as this guy, but it also might mean nobody would be better than this guy. And so it's ambiguous. Uh, As Christians, we easily fall into the sin, the lie of hypocrisy. We want to convey to others that we're more spiritual than we really are. So maybe you say to somebody, uh, yeah, when I was having my quiet time, and the, con- the way you're conveying it seems like, well, every day I have a quiet time, of course. And actually, that was the first one you'd had in a month. And, you know, you, you just say it in such a way to make yourself look good. Um, there are silent lies. Maybe somebody pays you a compliment and you know the compliment is not true. But why correct it? You know, let them think better of me than really is the case. There are evasive lies. We've seen that in the presidential campaign going on, where you just change the subject without answering the question. Uh, There are polite lies, and I think these are maybe the hardest. Somebody does something nice for you, and so you say something nice back, But it's not really true. You're just trying to be nice. I read about a pastor whose family hated fruitcake. And every Christmas, a woman would give them a fruitcake. And he said, "Um, you know, fruitcake like that doesn't last very long around our house. True, maybe not in the way that he conveyed to that woman. So you got to pray for a lot of grace when... You're trying to be polite and tactful, but, you know, the truth might hurt the person. Sometimes there are cover-up lies. This often comes out in our government where the person would rationalize and say, 
if I tell the truth, it's going to hurt a lot of people or it might even endanger our national security. And so we end up with Watergate, which was a giant cover-up scandal that brought down President Nixon, uh, or even the Benghazi thing where our president and secretary of state at first lied to say uh, it was due to a, a movie, an offensive movie that got all the Muslims stirred up. And that quickly was shown to be not true. The entire Bible, however, including our text, makes it plain that we must be truthful people. Truthful people. Now, that doesn't mean we have to share all of our thoughts. It doesn't mean we have to be brutally uh, honest and lacking in tact. We are to be truthful in love. And uh, sometimes love covers a multitude of sins, which would imply we don't broadcast everything we know about somebody. Uh, Love protects. Um, The Bible also acknowledges that there are these rare ethical dilemmas where literally maybe somebody's life is on the line. You remember the story in Exodus of the Hebrew midwives who lied to Pharaoh in order not to slaughter off all the Jewish boys as Pharaoh had commanded, or the story of Rahab and how she hid the Jewish spies so that they were protected from their enemies. Um, An interesting one where the Lord tells Samuel to go anoint David as king, and Samuel says, Lord, if I do that, Saul's going to kill me, And the Lord says, well, tell them you've come to sacrifice. And it was true. He did go to sacrifice. That wasn't the primary reason he was there. He went there to anoint David as king. But the Lord protected his life um, with the story, the statement, true statement about sacrificing. Uh, Those kind of situations, though, are pretty rare. Um, You know, maybe if you'd been protecting the Jews in Nazi Germany, you would have faced those quite often, uh, protecting people, but not very often around here. And so I don't want us to dodge the plain truth of our text, and that is do not lie to one another. Um, God is a God of truth, and so as his people, we have to speak the truth in love, And we have to be honest before God in all of our behavior. So why must we be truthful? Well, the main reason is to be like our Savior. He saved us. He is the truth. And we are now in him. And so we are to be truthful people. uh, And we represent him. And so Paul here shows that as Christians, we must be truthful because we're new members or we are new creatures, I should say, in Christ. Now, over in the parallel passage, it reads a little differently than it does here. In Ephesians, Paul says, you've been taught to put off the old man and to put on the new. In other words, it's like a command, something we are supposed to do. Here, though, he states that it's already a done deal. You've already put off the old man and put on the new. How do you reconcile that? Um, New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce explains it this way. He says, the tension between the indicative and the imperative 
between the already and the not yet is common in the Pauline letters. It is summed up in the admonition, be what you are, be in practice what the calling of God has made you. And so Paul is saying, now we're in Christ, act like it, act like it. Now, as I said, the literal translation is the old man, some of the versions have self, um, but the old man is what we were by nature because we were in Adam. We were all born in Adam, born as fallen creatures, and so it refers to us as children of Adam ruled in sin. Um, God doesn't improve our old nature when we come to Christ because in the parallel text in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 22, Paul says that our old man is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. In other words, God doesn't fix up the old man. Rather, he makes us a new creature in Christ, the new man that is now Um, according to Christ. And so uh, the picture Paul is using here is, you've been, you've experienced this, you're outside working in the yard in the summer and you're all dirty and your clothes are dirty and you come in and you take off the old, the dirty, and you take a shower and you put on new clean clothes. And that's the picture here of Paul is saying, look, in Christ you put off the old, the old man, all that you were in Adam, and now you've put on this new man, which is Christ, and so act accordingly. Now, some, in Romans 6, verse 6, Paul says, the old man was crucified with Christ, and so some commentators and some Bible teachers will say, uh, we don't have an old man anymore. We don't have uh, two natures, the... uh, Uh, old and the new, Uh, we are new creatures in Christ. And they'll cite uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. No word there about an old nature, a new nature. Um, I'm going to dispute that, though, and I'm going to say this. Anybody who's honest, and I've been walking with the Lord now for well over 50 years, Anybody who's honest, no matter how long you've, you've been a Christian, will admit inside of me and my flesh there is something that is a propensity towards sin that I have to constantly battle and fight. It is there. And you can call it the old nature. You can call it the flesh. You can call it the old man. You can call it indwelling sin. I don't care what the label is. But you should recognize that it is alive and well. And I believe that's what Paul is getting at in the whole of Romans chapter 7. And so the point is, at conversion, positionally we put off the old man and positionally we put on the new man. But now we have to act like it. And that's why in Romans 6, where Paul says the old man was crucified, he goes on and says... Therefore, reckon yourselves dead to sin. Yeah, you died to sin in Christ, positionally, but in practice, you have to put it into practice every time you're tempted by saying, wait a minute, that's not who I am. That's the old me. In Christ, I am a new creature. 
And you put off the old, you put on that new person. Now, three things Paul says about the new man. First of all, he says the new man is created by God and not by human effort. In verse 10, Colossians 3, and the notes are incorrect there, it should read 3.10. Paul says the new man which we put on is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. The one who created him. Well, Paul's going back to Genesis 1. When God made Adam and Eve, he said, let us create man in our own image. And as you know, the original couple fell into sin. That image of God was marred when they did that. But Christ is the new Adam. And now God is building a new people. People who are new creations in Jesus Christ through the new birth. And so God imparts new life to us when we get saved. And we become new creatures in Christ, no longer in Adam. Remember how Jesus told Nicodemus, who was a very moral man, Pharisee, good person. Jesus said to him in John 3, 6 and 7, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the old man. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then he added, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And so the flesh has no power to resurrect itself into new life. It has to be a God thing. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, we are born again through the power of God uh, unto a new life. And so what I'm getting at is this. Being a Christian is not a moral improvement project. It's not where you say, all right, I need to be honest. This year, that's my resolution. I'll work on honesty. And next year, I need to be moral. And the year after that, I need to add this. And That's not the Christian life. Yes, truly, we become moral, honest, upstanding people. But the point is we do it because we've received new life in Christ. It's the new birth working its way out. In uh, Romans 8.8, Paul says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They're not able to please God. And so you can paste all kinds of good works on the old man, but it's still the old man at heart. God's the one who has to change the heart, and he does that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Uh, That is how we receive the new man. And so what I'm saying is a life of truthfulness is not a matter of determining, I'm going to be more truthful. We may need a strategy to work on that problem. But what I'm saying is truthfulness is the fruit that comes from the new birth as we walk with Christ. And the second thing Paul says about the new man is that it's in the process of being renewed. In other words, it's not instantaneous. You got saved yesterday, today you're truthful. There's a process involved. There's a battle, a struggle Involved, You notice in verse 10, Paul says the new man is being renewed. It's, it's a growth thing, similar to what takes place in life. We aren't born grown up. Uh, we're born as babies. And as we grow up, our body is constantly being renewed from infancy to adulthood. Now, 
you reach a hump, and then it's kind of downhill from there, as I'm experiencing in my life, uh, where the uh, body begins to fall apart. But um, there's that uphill part as you're growing as a child into adulthood. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul <clears throat> was probably not quite as old as I am, but uh, he, he admits, he says, even though our physical bodies are decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. So there's that renewal process. How does it take place? It takes place through the renewing of our minds, and our minds are renewed through Scripture, which is God's Word of truth. God's Word sanctifies us. That is, it sets us apart from this world. God's Word revives us and changes us from the inside out. And the Bible says that as newborn babes crave their mother's milk, so we as believers should crave the word of God that we might grow in respect to our salvation if we've tasted the kindness of the Lord. And so the point is, it's a process. And I can't encourage you enough, get in the Bible daily as a habit. Read it over and over, cover to cover. And this is crucial memorize key verses. Because as I said in a message a few weeks ago, if you're out in the world and you're tempted, you're not going to have your big study Bible in concordance with you to say, "Uh, just a minute, temptation. I need to look that up. I know there's a verse on that somewhere. But if it's in your brain, it will come to mind. The Lord will bring it and flash it on the screen of your mind and say, wait a minute, I don't want to go there. I need to follow the Lord here. So memorize all the verses you can memorize. And I'll give you another clue. Do it when you're young. Do it when you're young. It is so hard as you get older to memorize verses. I, I work at it, but I fail at it. But I can quote verses that I learned when I was a kid. You know, even though I haven't reviewed them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. You know, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made. I can go rattle that off because I learned it when I was a child. But I can't quote you what I was trying to learn this week. So learn it young, okay? Learn it young. Um, The third thing Paul says here about the new man, first of all, it's a God thing. God does it when we're born again. He changes our hearts Secondly, it's a process. Thirdly, the new man is growing in the knowledge of God to become like Christ. Again, Colossians 3.10, the notes should read 3.10. Paul says, this new man we've put on is being renewed according to a true true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. The word knowledge there refers to a knowledge of Christ. And so God is in the process of renewing us, changing us, conforming us progressively to the image of Jesus Christ. And we saw in Colossians 2.3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to know God, you know God through Christ. Now, That involves, first of all, an academic knowledge of what the Bible teaches about who God is. Sometimes that knowledge is called theology. 
And I find that that word scares a lot of Christians, but it shouldn't, because you know what? Every one of you is a theologian. You've got ideas about God. You may be a really good theologian, or you may be kind of a sloppy theologian. If you form your ideas about God by partly by the Bible and then a conglomeration of what our culture says about God and maybe what <clears throat> you prefer God to be like, <clears throat> you're not a very good theologian. The Bible is our source of knowledge of God. He's revealed himself to us there. And so you have to get in the Bible. <clears throat> that's why I said read it cover to cover. You'll get a balanced view of that's who God is as you seek him in the word. But then also beyond the academic knowledge, you have to grow to know God personally. You know, I could have learned all about Marla before I married her. I did know a lot about her before I married her. But, you know, her height, her weight. Um, how many sisters she has, her family background, where she was born, all kinds of facts about her, but I wouldn't have known her. Getting married to her, and over these 42 now years, we have grown to know each other, and it's the same with the Lord. You grow to know him as daily, you walk with him, you, you are in his word, he speaks to you through the word, you grow to know him personally. And as you do, you discover this. God is the God of truth. He's called the God of truth. And the reason is, he is the creator of all that is, and therefore, he is the standard of truth. If something doesn't conform to God, it's not true. It's false. Also, the Bible says that God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Jesus, the Son of God, said that he is the truth. He said he came to bear witness to the truth. He came to speak the truth. But he also said in John 14, 6, I am the truth. He called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And so the point is, all three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are the truth. And as we get to know them, we become truthful people. By contrast, Satan is both a liar and the father of lies. You know what that means? Every time you tell a lie, you're being satanic. That's kind of harsh to think of that, isn't it? Satanic. Every time I lie, I am being like Satan. And God hates a lying tongue. God hates a false witness, it says in the book of Proverbs. It says in Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. That's a strong word, an abomination to him. And so the point is, again, as new creatures created in Christ uh, by God, growing to be more like him, we have to put aside all lying and falsehood and growing to become people marked by the truth. Now, there's a corporate aspect to it, though. It's not just an individual process. And so as Christians, Paul is saying we have to be truthful because we're members of the same body. He says that directly in Ephesians 4.25. The way he puts it here in verse 11 is this. In this new man, he says, there's no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, 
barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Now, Paul makes statements like that in other places where he gives a list of contrasting people. Probably this list, according to uh, one New Testament scholar, J.B. Lightfoot, this list relates to the situation in Colossae. Um, There were proud national Jews who were probably some of the false teachers in Colossae. And uh, against them, Paul says, there's no Greek and no Jew. Put that one aside, all of you who are proud of being Jews. And they were legalistic. And so Paul says, there's no circumcised and uncircumcised. You can't take pride in that outward Jewish ritual. And they had pride in their knowledge. And so Paul says, there's no barbarian and no Scythian. You know where the word barbarian comes from? The Greeks said that anybody who couldn't speak Greek sounds like barbar. That's what their language sounded like, barbar, just babble. And so they became known as barbarians, people who were uneducated and in the minds of the educated Greeks could not speak the language properly. The Scythians, they were from up north of the Black Sea, and they were notorious as being brutal, cruel warriors. Uh, They would be the ISIS of the day. And so they were kind of the low rung of the barbarians. In fact, I heard the word barbarian used of the, the ISIS group the other day on the news. Well, the Scythians were the worst of the worst. And Paul says, in Christ, there's no barbarian and no Scythian. And then he adds slave and freeman because with the letter of Colossae, Colossians, he's sending back to Colossae a man by the name of Onesimus. And we know the story from the little New Testament book of Philemon where Paul met Onesimus, a runaway slave, in Rome where Paul was a prisoner. He led Onesimus to Christ and now he's sending him back. And By law, Philemon could have slaughtered him because runaway slave was a capital crime. And Paul said, receive him back no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. So there's no slave and freeman. And so Paul is saying all of these things that the world divides us by, national barriers, uh, religious barriers, outward religious barriers, racial barriers, cultural distinctions, All of those are nothing in Christ, is what he is saying. And they they aren't in accordance with this one new man, which consists of Christ the head and his body, the one body, the church. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean that we can erase all of those things actually. Uh, If you were born with dark skin, you're going to have dark skin. If you're born with light skin, you can't change it. If you're born with blonde hair, you got blonde, and so on. Those are characteristics we can't change. Paul is saying, though, they shouldn't matter. They should not matter in the slightest in the church because we're all one new man in Christ. And I'm going to say something kind of radical here, but I, I really believe it, and I've been teaching this for years. Unless there is a language issue where people can't speak the same language, I'm going to argue we shouldn't have racially divided churches. Now, it's kind of radical, 
I don't think we should have black churches and white churches and Asian churches and Native American churches. We're all one. And it is the glory of the church to Christ when different races that the world would divide and different cultures, rich and poor, they all come together and worship together as one new man in Christ. The world can't explain that. Now, sadly, there are Christians, Christian leaders, who are deliberately trying to undermine that truth. It's called the church growth movement. And way back in the 70s, they came out with this principle they called the fancy name, the homogeneous unit principle. And what it means is this. They made this wonderful discovery that people like to worship with people just like them, just like they are. And so if you want to reach the old folks, then you need to have a traditional service where, you know, you sing hymns and you, you all wear suits and, you know, you have church like these people are used to having church. And if you want to reach the millennial generation, then you need to look like they look and dress like they dress and talk like they talk and have loud rock music like they like and just, you know, target that segment. And it divides the church. It divides the church. And while churches grow that way, there are churches that you walk in. Marla and I went to one down in the Phoenix area a few months back when we were off on a Sunday. And uh, I swear we were the oldest people in there. there. There were no other people our age. And, you know, welcome to church. Here's your earplugs. And, uh, boy, they, they moved that service out, and it was catering to the young. And, uh, again, I just think that's unbiblical. You know, I'm going to say something radical to the young people. You need to learn some hymns. Some of the hymns are wonderful. And you need to hand them off to your kids and to their kids. They have solid doctrine. And I I don't mind if they change the tune like we did. We sang Fanny Crosby, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, this morning to a different tune. That's fine. Amen. But let's not lose that. And I'm going to say something to the older folks. You need the young people. You do. Because the church is a family. And I'm so glad that in my family I got grandkids who are little babies and on up because they have something that contributes to me. There's zeal and there's enthusiasm there. And you know what? Some of you older couples need to take some younger couples under wing. Have them over and get to know them and share with them how the Lord has sustained you and your marriage through all the years because you've been through some stuff. We all do. And you've had to rear children, and that's not easy. And they're in the trenches, and they could use your wisdom. You see, we're a family. We're a body. And that's why I have steadfastly refused to have a a traditional service at 9 a.m. and a contemporary service at 11 a.m. That's the world, in my opinion. We need to all get along as Christians and the world will say, wow, how do they do that? Christ, he's the, he's the glue. And then Paul caps it all off by saying that. It's a phrase that if you think about it deeply, it sums up the entire letter of Colossians. In fact, it sums up the entire Christian life. 
He says, Christ is all and in all. And I'm going to preach on that next Sunday. I just couldn't pass that one up. But uh, briefly here, what he's saying is Christ is the substance. Christ is the center. Christ is everything in the Christian life. He's all. He, he says it a different way over in 1 Corinthians 1.30, where he says that Christ became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What else do you need? Christ is all, is what he's saying. Uh, in chapter 3 of Colossians, we've already seen we're raised up with Christ, and uh, he says your life is hidden with Christ in God, and that Christ is your very life. And so he is our all-sufficient Savior. And by the way, those early verses in chapter 3 are the basis for all the moral commandments that follow. And that's what keeps us from just becoming Christian, meaning add this, add this, and become a moral person. No, it's Christ as your life that manifests itself in godly behavior, especially truthfulness. And then he says Christ is in all. And as I've already explained, that's the basis for Christian unity. You know, we are one in Christ. In Christ, we're one body. Now, in Ephesians 4, Paul goes on and he says, well, even though we're one, we have to attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the mature man, to the knowledge of Christ, the Son of God. So there's a growth in unity, but there's a basis for unity, and that is this. If you've truly trusted in Jesus Christ, and the other person is truly trusted in Jesus Christ, you're, you're one. You're in the same body. And while we may differ on some doctrinal issues, and while it's legitimate to debate those issues in love, because that's how we grow to know the truth, I can't condemn somebody and write them off uh, and reject them if they truly know Christ. They're my brother. They're my sister. And so we must accept one another because we are Christians. Now, we'll look more, starting in verse 12 in two weeks, on how Christian relationships should function. And that runs all the way down into chapter 4, verse 1. But as you think about relationships, truth is an essential ingredient of relationships. It's essential. You can't know God and be rightly related to God unless you know something about the truth about God and the truth about yourself, that God is holy and righteous, that you are separated from him by your sin, that he made a way through the death of Jesus on the cross to offer salvation to everyone as a free gift. That's the truth. And that brings you into a relationship with God when you trust Christ that then grows. Same thing in your relationships with others. They depend on the truth, don't they? Getting to know another person deeply involves getting to know the truth about them and revealing the truth about yourself to them. Now, we can't do that deeply with very many people, but that is how we get to know one another. And there has to be truth and love in the body of Christ so we can properly relate to one another as God's people, helping each other become all that God wants us to be. But my point is truth is at the heart of good relationships. And so 
I just want to ask two questions here in way of conclusion. First of all, are you walking truthfully before God? That means not covering up your sin, just being open, walking in the light, opening all of your life to the Lord. The truth is, when we come to Christ, most of us have some dirty closets, and we like to keep the door shut there and keep the Lord out of those. And he wants to clean house. And you have to open your life to the Lord. Now, he knows all about you, but if you hide your sin from God, it's a sure way you're going to drift in your relationship with God. God knows my every thought and, and my every word, and so I have to walk openly, truthfully with God. And then the second question, are you walking truthfully with your family and with the family of God? It's a lot easier to be superficial and, and hide the truth because maybe we don't want people to know. So we put on our Sunday mask and we go to church and, and we fake it. And the, the body doesn't grow that way. Something that really grieves me is when I miss a family and, and I ask around and, they, and I hear, oh yeah, they had a falling out with that other family and they're going over to another church. And my question is, why didn't they work it through? Why didn't they grow through the conflict by sitting down, talking about it, coming to an understanding, clearing up hurt feelings? We have to do that. I mean, you know, if we did that in our marriages, none of us would be married very long. We're committed. And so we have to sit down when there's hurt feelings or misunderstandings and talk it through and understand each other. And uh, if we don't do that, we won't reflect this new man that we are in Christ. Someone observed this. The most striking contradiction of our civilization is the fundamental reverence for truth, which we profess, and the thoroughgoing disregard for it, which we practice. I hope that's not true of us as a church, that we are truthful people, Truthful in our relationship with God, truthful in our relationship with one another in love because we're new creatures in Christ and we're members of one another, the same body. Father, I pray that you would help us. Uh, this verse is convicting. These verses are convicting to all of us because you know our battle with truth. We always want to make ourselves look good. We always want to cover up project an image, and you see through all of it. Thank you that even though you knew all of that about us, you loved us, you sent your son to die for us. I pray, Lord, if any are here outside of Christ, that right now they would come and draw near to you, that they would seek you while you may be found and call out to you while you're near, because you're ready to pardon all sinners who come to you through Jesus. I pray, Lord, if any of your people are living a double life or covering up their sin, that you would convict them through your spirit, that they would see that it is because you love us, that you want us to be like you, and you are truthful. And that we as your church might be a witness to the world by our truth in love one to another. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.